0: Wasn't it great to have our kids with us this morning, do something a little different? Sometimes I think we forget how big we actually are as a church, and then uh, you add in all of our children. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, This morning, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Acts, where we've been talking about being a part of something bigger than me. What does it mean to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, and what is that thing? Well, we've seen that that thing is Jesus has called us into a mission to be witnesses, And he told the first disciples, he says, you will be my witnesses in all Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? And so we understand that Jesus was telling them, hey, you're going to be witnesses. You're going to be uh, people who talk about what you've seen and heard. Tell people my story beginning right here where you are, and you're going to spread out from there. And we've seen in the last few weeks the that he didn't leave us without the tools to accomplish that task. He gives us the Holy Spirit. And how when we, are, when we are allowing the Holy Spirit to control our lives, that we begin to speak boldly about our Savior and what he's done for us. And we're going to continue that story and that theme this morning as we look at Acts chapter 6 and 7 in the story of Stephen. And yes, we're going to cover two whole chapters uh, in one message, so we're going to have to move pretty quick, and we're actually not going to read the whole thing. So I encourage you, if you haven't been keeping up with your reading plan, that this would be a great opportunity this afternoon to go home and read all of these two chapters. Um, It's such an inspiring chapter, two chapters of Scripture, to read about Stephen, who would become the first Christian martyr. And we, if you remember, when we went back to Acts chapter 1, we said that when Jesus says, you will be my witness, that the word witness is martis. Martis, which is where we get our word from, martyr, from. And so Stephen literally becomes a very powerful witness through his life and even in his death. Now, let me ask you something. Some of the greatest accomplishments in the world, when you think about it, Require sacrifice. If you're going to accomplish something bigger than yourself, some people set out to become Olympians and they sacrifice friends. They sacrifice sleep. They sacrifice food. Putting themselves on strict diets and strict workouts so that they can become Olympians. Professional athletes sacrifice to reach the level that they, they have to be, be at. Musicians. Professional Musicians. I know we all think that they only know three chords, but they sacrifice a lot to be able to get to the level that they are. Most things in life that are worth doing require sacrifice. Being a mom requires great sacrifice. Being a dad requires sacrifice. All of these things are things that require sacrifice, but the sacrifice is not without reward, right? Most of the times, the payoff in the end is well worth the sacrifice that we initially faced. And this morning, we're going to start by looking at Stephen in Acts chapter 6, but I want to give just a little bit of background. As I said, we're not going to read all of 6 and 7, and so just so you understand who Stephen is, Stephen, his name, Stephanus, is a Greek name, and it means crown of victory. So when they would uh, have the Olympics back then, they didn't get gold medals, they got little wreaths, And that was the victor's crown. And so his name literally refers to the victor's crown. So all those people who would sacrifice, they would earn this crown of victory. And that's what his name means, Stephanus. And we know that because of his name that he was most likely a Hellenistic Jew. What is that? A Hellenistic Jew is someone who was born Jewish, but they were born outside of Israel. So they could have been born somewhere else, usually somewhere in the Greek world, but they could have been born in Persia. If you remember uh, the Babylonian captivity, there were Jews that remained there and they could have been born there. But then they would move back to Israel, yet they would keep some of their culture and customs from their previous land that they lived. And these were the Hellenistic Jews. And so as we see the church begin on, on the day of Pentecost, we know that that's the city of Jerusalem was filled of both people who lived there as well as some of these Hellenistic Jews who didn't. And what happens over time is that because of the language barrier, because uh, the Hellenistic Jews would often speak Greek or Arabic or something other than Hebrew and Aramaic, which the, the 12 apostles spoke, there became this a little bit of, of problem when it came in regard to the division of daily portions. As you remember in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 and then 5, we see that people were so overwhelmed by what God was doing that they would go and they would sell their things to provide for people that didn't have anything. Usually these were uh, specifically widows. Widows who were devoting themselves to the work in, within the church. The people would say, hey, let us help take care of you. Let us help meet your needs. And they would sacrifice for one another. Well, what happens is Peter, James, John, Andrew, these guys don't speak Greek. They don't speak the other languages, and so there's this barrier, and they are not able to understand exactly what the widows need, and so the widows aren't being served as equally. The Hellenistic widows aren't being served as equally, and the people come to them and say, hey, there's a problem. Our widows aren't being served the same as your widows, and the apostles say, hey, we recognize this is a problem. We need to do something about it. Go find uh, some men who are full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom, and we will appoint them over the distribution of, of the funds. And this makes sense because you want guys who have good character and, and they're well-known for their character to be over money, right? You don't just want to pick some guy off the street and say, here's all the money, you manage it. That wouldn't be very smart. So they pick these men. They, they have seven of them. And two of those men, Philip uh, is one of them, and Stephen. Uh, we're going to get to hear their stories a little bit through Acts. But Stephen is one of those men who it said is full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. And so we pick up with Stephen here in Acts chapter 6, verse 3. It says, Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint for this duty. But we will our, devote ourselves to prayer, to the preaching ministry, To the uh, and this proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip Porcus Nicodemus. Uh, Nicanor, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. And then skip down to verse 8, and we read this about Stephen. We see that Stephen was so good at his job of distributing things that we don't know how long has passed between uh, verse 6 and 7 and verse 8, but we do know that probably some time has passed, and he's probably got delegated that to other people, and now he's out doing the ministry of preaching the word as well. And it says, Stephen was full of grace and power, performing great wonders and signs among the people. And it's in the midst of doing all of this that Stephen is going to find himself on trial for his witness. We're going to find himself about to make a great sacrifice for the kingdom. And so the first thing I want us to see, as we think about Stephen's story, we're going to talk about the man, the message, and the martyr. We're going to talk about Stephen the man first, and what we're going to see is this, that godly character is the basis for a bold witness for Christ Jesus, no matter the result. You've got to have godly character Now, does that mean if I'm a new believer or that I'm struggling with sin that I can't be a witness? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But what we see is that when our words match up with our lifestyle, that it is powerful. Remember, this is a man who had a good reputation. He was said to be full of a lot of things. Now, I'm sure some of you have been said to be full of a lot of things. But let's think about what Stephen was full of. First, we see that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? That means, as we've said, that you are surrendering control of your life to God's Spirit, and you are bringing your life into uh, alignment with His. He daily walked under control of the Holy Spirit. And what does that look like? Well, Paul tells us in Galatians five twenty two and 23, that someone whose life is full of the Holy Spirit will bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And so I want to ask you, if you as you think about your life, does your life reflect these qualities, the fruit of the Holy Spirit? In increasing measure, we ought to it be increasing in that? That's one of the ways that we can evaluate our own spiritual growth. Am I growing? And day by day, am I more and more reflecting these qualities? When I was in fourth grade, my parents were teaching a class for fifth graders that was designed to help them take their faith and make it their own. It was a survival guide for believers. And I can remember because I was special or because my parents were teaching class, whatever you want to tell yourself, uh, because my parents were teaching class, I got to go through it as a fourth grader And every week, in addition to our homework that we would do, we would have a memory verse. And I can remember this was one of our memory verses. And I remember we would go around each week, and my parents would check, make sure everybody had done their memory verse. And there's always that one person who, while everybody else is saying their verse, they're saying it to themselves, kind of under their breath, but they're, you know, kind of whispering it. And so it gets to these two girls. The one is, uh, it's her turn, And her friend sitting next to her is saying the verses along with everybody under her breath. Love, joy, peace, patience. Right? So this girl is saying her verse. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. And then she goes, shut up! And (laughs) self-control. It's one of those moments where we couldn't help but laugh. She had no idea why we were laughing. But she was so mad that her friend was talking while she was trying to talk. She yells, shut up! And then self-control. Uh, so, we recognize that was something she needed to work on, was a little self-control, but is, is that something that is growing in increasing measure in your life? Are you daily surrendering to the Holy Spirit and growing in the fruit of the Spirit? The second thing we see about Stephen is we're, we're told that he is full of wisdom. Now this word wisdom is only used four times in the book of Acts, twice it's used to describe Stephen, and then Stephen will actually use it in chapter 7 twice in his sermon. We're told that Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, Proverbs 9.10 tells us that the beginning of wisdom, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And so we have wisdom and understanding, and and really, uh, a simple definition of wisdom is knowledge that is correctly applied. Knowledge that has been correctly applied. And so, I love this illustration, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing you don't put tomatoes in a fruit salad, right? That would be gross. Philosophy is wondering if if ketchup is a smoothie. Common sense is knowing that ketchup is not a smoothie, right? So you got wisdom, knowledge, uh, philosophy, and common sense. But wisdom is, is a skill. In fact, the Hebrew word for wisdom is the same word as skill. And so when God is preparing the tabernacle and he tells Moses, I need you to find skilled craftsmen who can build something beautiful that for people to worship in, he uses the same word, wisdom, skilled, And so wisdom, in the spiritual sense, is the skill of taking the Word of God and applying it to our lives to bring our lives in alignment with His Word and His will. Are you working on that skill on a regular basis? How are you doing at developing that skill? And here's the thing with Stephen, is that uh, this kind of skill results in the right conduct and obedience. Every system of salvation that mingles good works with God's grace, nullifies the cross as in a, and is opposed to God's wisdom. The faithful witness, like Stephen, will refute this wisdom of the world and will extol the wisdom of Christ in the cross. And we're going to see that exactly in his sermon. That he's going to be talking to people who think, oh, well, as long as we worship God the right way and do our good works, then we get God's grace. And Stephen is going to blow that out of the water. And he's going to say, no, the wisdom of God far surpasses this. It is by grace that you are saved. It's not because of your works. The next thing we see about Stephen is that he is full of faith. Verse 5 describes him as being full of faith. And this refers to Stephen's faith in God. And in his sermon, he's going to show that he believes in a sovereign God, the God who called the pagan Abraham, and makes a covenant with him and, and shows his faithfulness through his dealings with Abraham's descendants. This same faithful Sovereign God is the one who brought Jesus, the righteous one, to save his people by grace through faith in spite of the nation of Israel's history of rebellion. God, he says, look, I I have faith in this sovereign and gracious God. We also see that Stephen is full of grace, full of grace. This is one area that I'm specifically working on. Um, My wife and probably my neighbors can tell you um, that this is one of those things that Sometimes comes to my kids, comes to my wife. I just, my patience, my grace is not always there. It's something I continue to work on. Um, but we're told that Stephen was full of grace, full of grace. And I love this because in John one we we're told that Jesus came with grace and truth. And we're going to see Stephen mirror, uh, in, in fact, his whole trial and death mirrors that of Jesus in an, in an amazing way. Not because he's some sort of... Uh, Christ-like figure, but because his life was so intertwined with his Savior's that he begins to mirror his Savior. So much so that as the men are picking up stones to stone him, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Sound familiar? Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. He has that kind of grace. Oh, that we could have that kind of grace and show that kind of grace to the people who hurt and injure us. Lastly, we see that that Stephen is full of power. Now, it's interesting that uh, other than the apostles, we only read about two people in the book of Acts that had the ability to do miraculous signs and wonders, and that's Stephen and Philip. Now, I I don't know how this happened or or what happened, and I definitely don't want to limit God by, by a restrictive theology, but as I have studied Scripture, I will say that I do believe that um, someone who is regularly able to perform miracles like heal people and um, do things like that, I do believe that that was limited to the early part of the New Testament as uh, during the apostolic time period. Um, I, I don't think that that's something that we have today. Um, if you tell me you have the gift of healing, I'm going to need to see quite a bit of proof. Right? Um, it's not like the gift of hospitality where you can show that very easily. Um, The gift of healing is something different. And so uh, this is something special that God is using to affirm the testimony of these early believers. That what they're saying is true. That not only did Jesus die for our sins, but he rose from the dead. And and he's affirming that through them. But how do we show show God's power in our lives today? And I think one of the ways we can show God's power in our life today is when we suffer through trials and we suffer well. And we're going to see that Stephen did exactly that. We have, uh, we have the confirming of our testimony by the way that God's mighty power is shown in our lives when we patiently and, in, and joyfully endure trials, not just when we're miraculously delivered from them. Right? We saw earlier that the early church in Acts chapter 4, they prayed for enablement, not for escape. So we need to pray for the same thing. God, would you give me the strength to endure through this trial with joy? rather than escape from it, because I believe that you have me going through this trial for a purpose. I don't understand it. I don't know why, but I believe you have a purpose. Lastly, we see, as far as Stephen's character, that he had such a strong character. He had these five qualities. He was so full of them that it, it overflowed into his outward appearance. Look down with me at the last part of Acts chapter 6, and it says, um, all who were standing in the, sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw his face was the face of an angel. Now, I think some of us, we sing, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. down in my heart. Well, someone needs to tell your face, right? We walk around like we just bit into a lemon. And we wonder why people don't want to hear about the joy of Jesus when all we do is walk around and we scowl. And it says this man had the face of an angel, and even his adversaries could see that. It's amazing. It's amazing. I've recently read a book about a man who lived in the uh, 1800s. He was a preacher over in London. His name was R.C. Chapman. If you know the name uh, uh, Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the most famous preachers during the 1800s, he said that Chapman was the saintliest man he ever knew. Right, so think about one of the greatest preachers who ever taught. says, this man is the saintliest man he ever knew. And uh, one of the stories in that book stood out to me. And it was a story of Chapman being on this public stagecoach. And his friend recorded this. He says, his countenance revealed his kindness of heart and was a great help to him in securing the ear of people. One day he was seated on a, on a public stagecoach. Though he had not opened his lips to say a word, a man and a woman began to quarrel furiously. And at last, the woman said, I affirm that I am as innocent of that which you accuse me as is that holy man of God sitting over in the corner who, as anyone can see, is going straight to heaven. Man never said a word, but this woman could see in his face that he was a man of God. How powerful is that? What a testimony to the inner qualities, the inner character that this man possessed, that it's shown in his outer qualities. I want to ask you this morning, are you full of it? Are you full of it? Be like Stephen, be full of it, because our character is the basis for a bold witness for Christ, no matter the results, no matter the results. Stephen wasn't concerned about how many people were going to come to Christ that day. He just knew that God had called him to witness boldly. Next, we see the message. We see the message in Acts chapter 7, and by this, we see that we are to boldly proclaim the gospel with grace and truth without regard to ourself. Now, I don't have time to cover all of Stephen's message, so I'm just going to hit the highlights real quick. Stephen's message covers this. It's the story of, of Israel's history as it reveals a sovereign God of abundant grace. He dealt gracefully with Abraham, who was a pagan, and God makes a covenant with him. Uh, He shows his graciousness through Joseph, how he spares him when his brothers sell him into slavery. God raises him up and allows him to be the savior of his family uh, and puts him in a position to save his family from famine. And then God uses Moses to deliver his people out of slavery. And then as Israel's history goes on, we see that they stubbornly reject God's grace and mercy by rebelling. We see it very early on as they're not long into the wilderness and they start making idols and worshiping these idols. But God has grace and mercy towards them. We see it as the prophets come and they warn them, hey, guys, you're not following God's law. You're not living according to God's way. And what do they do? They persecute and they kill the prophets. And God has mercy on them. Even after he has to send them into exile, he has mercy on them and allows them to come back to the land that he promised them. And then lastly, we see that the history of Israel is one where they confuse the worship. They begin to worship the ritual of worship rather than the one who created them for worship. And let me just say very quickly that we ourselves, we've got to guard against this. We've got to guard against this in our lives, thinking that just because I came on Sunday morning uh, and because I had a quiet time this morning that I'm doing okay as a Christian. Because we can very easily begin to worship that ritual rather than the one with whom we're called to be in relationship. Tracking with me on that? You follow? It's very easy to worship the ritual rather than the one we're called to be in relationship with. Uh, We see that, that he does this with grace and truth. As Stephen preaches, he has false witnesses that come before the Sanhedrin and they're saying, spouting all these lies about Stephen and he doesn't defend himself. And that's hard for us, isn't it? When someone you accuses you of something, to be put in a position where you feel like, I've got to defend myself or else. And he doesn't really defend himself. He does in his, in his sermon. He, he shows that what they said wasn't true, but he doesn't say, look, just so you know, I, I do believe in the law of Moses. No, but he talks about Moses and he says, our father, our father Moses, our father Abraham, and he shows that he agrees with the history of what God has done with them, and he's doing so well until he gets to the end, right? And then he moves from our father to your fathers who persecuted and killed the prophets. And he changes, but it was a necessary change He needed to speak with grace but also with truth and let them know that you are not sinless. Just because you're holding down this ritual of worship doesn't mean that God has accepted you. The acceptance comes through his righteous one, Jesus. And so he, he, with grace and truth, presents the gospel to them. And they won't listen. And I think it's important that we remember that it's with grace and truth because how many of us have ever heard someone say, "Well, the gospel's offensive." Anybody ever heard that? One person. Excellent. Are you guys awake this morning? Do we need more coffee? Two people. Awesome. The gospel's offensive. And they take that and they say, "Well, the gospel's offensive," and what they really mean is, "I can be offensive with the gospel." And here's the thing, is that the gospel is offensive in and of of itself. People don't like to hear about righteousness, uh, righteousness and sinfulness and how they're unrighteous and how they can't earn their way to heaven. That's very convicting, and they don't like to hear it. That is offensive to people. When you tell them that you are a sinner and you are on your way to hell apart from Jesus Christ, they get offended. That's offensive, but that doesn't mean we have to be. And some people think, well, as long as I'm out there holding the picket signs and telling them that they're going to hell, I can be as offensive as I want to be, right? Because I'm suffering for Jesus, and that's what he's called me to do. Yes, Jesus has called you to to suffer for him, but not be insufferable. There's a big difference. With grace and truth, we present the gospel. People need to hear about their sinfulness. People need to hear about their unrighteousness. But they need to hear with grace and truth and in a loving way that God demonstrated his love for them by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to die for them. Second Timothy 3.12 says this. It says, in fact, all those who want to live a godly life for Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so you can expect when you make decisions according to God's word instead of the worldly wisdom, you can expect that you will be persecuted. You will be persecuted, and you can live up underneath that knowing uh, that you, by the way you live and the way that you talk, are proclaiming that truth with grace, without regard for yourself. I don't think Stephen was concerned about how many friends he was going to lose that day. I don't think he was concerned with how his business was going to be affected. All he knew is that God had called him to boldly proclaim the truth in grace, I don't think he knew it was going to cost him his life. But he preached with truth and grace, without regard for himself. Lastly, let's look at Stephen the martyr. Living and speaking boldly as a witness requires sacrifice. We just saw this in the verse we just read in Second Timothy, that it does require sacrifice. Let's, let's look at this last section, verses 54 through 60, and hear what happens to Stephen. When they heard these things, He's just told them about the prophets and how they killed them and how Jesus was the promised one that they crucified and they murdered. And it says, when they heard this, heard these things, they were enraged in their hearts and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, filled by the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw God's glory with Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, affirming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then they screamed... At the top of their voices, like a bunch of kids covering their ears (laughs) all together. You can picture the Sanhedrin going, La, 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 la! I can't hear you. La, 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 right? So they cover their ears, rushed against him. They threw him out of the city and began to stone him. And uh, witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They were stoning Stephen as he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And saying this, he fell asleep. It's a difficult thing to hear about this man who simply for proclaiming God's truth ends up giving his life. Ends up giving his life. We can expect as Christians, when we speak the truth boldly, we can expect to suffer. But what I love about this passage is is that even in the midst of his suffering, Stephen has peace because of Jesus' presence with him. We have that same promise. Jesus says, Surely I am with you even to the very end of the age. Suffering for Christ is always for his greater purpose and glory. We saw that in Acts chapter 4. And we see it later when, the, when in Acts chapter 5. Again, the apostles are arrested and they're mistreated And it says they left prison rejoicing, counting it a joy that they would be able to suffer for Jesus Christ. Do we count it as the same joy? Understanding that when we suffer, God has a greater purpose, that his will is being accomplished, that we have an opportunity to be bold for him. And as we do this, as we suffer well, as we make those sacrifices, it demonstrates our faith in God and his sovereignty. It shows God's love to those he's persecuting. We just read about Saul, and we know that later Saul is going to have a life-changing experience with Jesus Christ himself, and I imagine he's going to write some things later in his life, and he's going to reflect on that day that he stood there and he watched Stephen be stoned. I bet that experience never left him, and I bet he's just overwhelmed more and more by the grace of God, overflowing through that story. Anybody happen to know where Christianity is growing the fastest? Take a guess. China, good guess. Africa, good guess. Korea, Iran, and Afghanistan. Two countries that have the heaviest persecution of Christians. The heaviest persecution of Christians is where it's growing the fastest. And I believe it's because as the church is persecuted, they overflow like Stephen with the grace of God. And those who are persecuting them get to see the truth and grace. They get to see the power of that witness. And they experience it firsthand. And it becomes a life-changing experience for them. Maybe what we need in this country is a good, healthy dose of persecution. I don't know. I don't know. It's a difficult thing. But we see the sovereignty of God, God using these tragic events to expand the influence of his kingdom. God is always expanding the influence and the further of his mission that we've been given by Jesus. And we see that come so often through sacrifice. Now, we are blessed to live in a country that we are not asked to give our lives for our faith, Uh, But there are a number of sacrifices that we may need to make. We may need to make the sacrifice of a few friends by offending them and saying this is so important to me that you understand why Jesus died. And they may turn us away. It may mean the sacrifice of you know what, I can't watch this show anymore because when I watch it, man, I know I'm not full of the Holy Spirit. I can't listen to this music anymore because when I listen to it, I know I'm not full of the Holy Spirit. I can't As much as I know I need to be around my friends that don't know Jesus, when they go out after work, I know I can't be there because of the type of conversations that they're going to have and expect me to be a part of. We also may be called to make sacrifices in other ways. We know the early church sacrificed their wealth in a number of ways, and we have an opportunity coming up in February on the 19th where we are going to take a special offering that's going to go directly to missions. It's going to go to Missions and Church Planting, and it'll be a special offering. This is above and beyond your normal tithes, and I encourage you as a family, start praying now about what you and your kids will give, so that as we go throughout the world, more and more people can hear the life-changing reality of Jesus Christ. Maybe it means giving up Netflix for a month, or cable for a couple months, so that you can expand the influence of the kingdom of God. What are some small sacrifices that you might be able to make? Again, we are blessed that we don't have to give up our lives. I love this last passage, chapter 7, verses 55 and 56, where we see Stephen, and he says, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, to me, this stands out every single time, because whenever we hear about Jesus in heaven, we hear about him seated at the right hand of God. We hear him seated at the right hand of God. And now, Stephen says, I see him standing. Let me tell you what I think is happening. Two things. I think Jesus is standing, number one, to welcome his servant home. Number two, I think Jesus is telling him, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And that joy fills Stephen. Stephen. And the pressure of those rocks striking him in the head and in the body doesn't even compare to the joy that he's filled with. He's willing to make that sacrifice. The writer, <clears throat> the writer of um, Pilgrim's Progress was in jail for 12 years. John Bunyan, and he says this. Uh, he says, On the day of judgment, a smile or a kind look from Christ shall be worth more than 10,000 worlds. He would give up 10,000 worlds in order to have that smile or kind word from Christ saying, Well done, well done. Are you willing to make the sacrifices necessary to live with godly character, to boldly proclaim his message with truth and grace, and to maybe make some small sacrifices? in order that you would be able to live and speak boldly as a witness for Jesus Christ. We have so much to learn from Stephen. My greatest ambition in life, my greatest ambition, is that I would live a life worthy, be counted worthy to suffer for the Lord so that when I arrive in heaven, I could get just that warm smile and a well done from my Lord and Savior. Will you pray with me?